Good morning. One more try. Good morning. There we are. One full participation here. Okay, let's continue with the incredible momentum that was begun this morning by Senator uh, Miller and also the first panel. Uh, my name is Dr. Walter Rucker. I'm an associate professor of African American and African Studies here at the Ohio State University. And I'm the moderator for this panel on the impact of health and economy on African American males. What I'll do, I'll begin by introducing our panelists. They will each have 15 minutes for their presentations and we'll move quickly towards the question and answer period. Uh, we begin with Dr. James Moore. Dr. James L. Moore III is an associate professor in counselor education in the College of Education and Human Ecology at The Ohio State University. He is also an affiliate at the John Glenn Institute, the Kerman Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, and the Ohio Collaborative at The Ohio State University. Further, Dr. Moore is a laser research associate at the Center for Action Research on Urban Schools and Effective Leadership at the University of South Florida. Dr. Moore. Next, we'll have Dr. William Oliver. Dr. Oliver is an associate professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Indiana University. His research interests include violence among African American males, domestic violence in the African American community, the impact of incarceration on African Americans, and rural crime and justice. Professor Oliver currently serves as a lead researcher on the Safe Return Initiative, a research and technical assistance project granted to the Institute on Domestic Violence in the African American community and the Vera Institute of Justice by the U.S. Department of Justice's Office on Violence Against Women. The primary goal of the Safe Return Initiative is to examine the intersection of prisoner reentry and intimate partner violence in the African American community. Among his recent publications are The Structural Cultural Perspective, A Theory of Black Male Violence. Dr. Oliver received his BA from Tuskegee University and his MA and PhD from the State University of New York at Albany. Dr. Oliver. Our third panelist will be Dr. Kenneth Steinman. Dr. Steinman is an assistant professor in the Division of Health Behavior and Health Promotion at the Ohio State University in the College of Public Health. He received his PhD and MPH at the University of Michigan and has served as visiting instructor at the Hebrew University Hadassah Braun School of Public Health in Israel. His research focuses on the influence of religiosity on adolescent risk behavior, including substance use, violence, and risky sexual behavior. Dr. Steinman is principal investigator of Columbus Congregations for Healthy Youth, a CDC-funded project that uses collaborative research among OSU researchers, local agencies, and black churches to understand the limits and potential of faith-based approaches to positive youth development. Dr. Steinman. Our fourth panelist is Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nemhard. Uh, Dr. Gordon-Nemhard is an assistant professor and economist in the African American Studies Department and a founding principal of the Democracy Collaborative at the University of Maryland College Park. 
Dr. Gordon M. Hart specializes in economic development policy with a focus on democratic community-based economic development, cooperative economics, and worker ownership. Her recent publications include Cooperatives and Wealth Accumulation in the American Economic Review, Non-Traditional Analysis of Comparative or Cooperative Economic uh, Impacts in the Review of International Cooperation, and Cooperative Ownership in the Struggle for African-American Economic Empowerment and Humanity and Society. She is also a co-editor of the forthcoming anthology entitled Wealth Accumulation and Communities of Color in the United States, Current Issues, which will be published by the University of Michigan Press. She is in the process of completing a book on the African-American cooperative movement. Dr. Gordon M. Hart. So we'll begin with our first panelist. I'm deeply honored and humbled to be invited to this session. I'd like to commend uh, Professor Powell and Dr. Tremble and all the associates that brought us together. It is these fine traditions that the academy is about, bringing practitioners and scholars and the community to the academy. It is these traditions that I hold dear. They follow the path and the traditions of those who came before us, with Du Bois, Franklin, and others who came before us. But one of the things that is always mind-boggling when I began to think about the plight of African-American males and, and my privileged job as, as being an academic, working at one of the finest institutions in America, is that many of the institutions that we profess to serve are not being adequately served. And when I say that, um, to kind of digress here, I'm on leave of absence from the university, and um, because of my discontent for the plight, I went and became an administrator in the District of Columbia Public Schools. And so now you, you do the research, so now I have even a closer view of the challenges that many of these young people face day after day after day. And I must say, as a human, being a counselor by training, I am always touched and always wake up appalled at night like it's a nightmare. To see the conditions of our institutions that profess to educate kids, to engage in democracy at the highest level. When you go through some of those buildings, you just say, wow, those buildings mirror some of the very things that the panels talk about the penal system. In Washington, D.C., our newest school was built in the 90s. And many of the schools are over 100 years old, just like many of the schools in the Midwest in Ohio. So if our schools are going to represent a beacon of hope, we must rectify the schools. So when you begin to think about this plight, Stephen Carter wrote the book, The Reflection of the affirmative action, baby. And he said, blacks are somewhere along this continuum. The first black, the only black, the first black, the only black, or the best black. And when you begin to think about these challenges, these psychological challenges, 
they sometimes create a quandary, the double consciousness that Du Bois talks about. And what, in this kind of work and in the work that I've been doing is that from the cradle to the grave, a stigma of inferiority follows males, black males, everywhere they go. No matter whether you have a PhD, no matter whether you have a PhD or whether you just have a high school diploma, that stigma follows you everywhere you go. In turn, it has psychological effects on the psyche. When you enter a domain in which the standards are very low, it impacts young people. And it creates a reluctance for young people to want to engage in those activities, and we see disengagement. I don't know if you watched, uh, if you all read the Washington Post yesterday, and they talk about the high school dropout and the urban minorities leading the way. We tend to lead the way in the categories that we all feel so bad about, and we hear the, the categories that may, uh, that's, communicate negativity. To kind of capture the essence of what I'm going to talk about, and I must say it's very difficult for a southern boy who grew up on the front porch with his grandparents to have only 15 minutes to capture what they need to talk about. The senator said he's Baptist, so I definitely can understand. I grew up Baptist and Pentecostal, so you know that's a mixed combination. So, a quote by Clement Von Tress. He says, one of the main responsibilities of families is to teach their kids the traditions in which they were born and how to survive in the society. In many ways, we see so many of our kids, the traditions, I heard the senator talk about, he asked a uh, a, a, a newly college, I mean a graduate with a JD, what was a case that was significant that African Americans was a part of in, in terms of the civil rights and the students couldn't mention that. In order to deal with the doom and gloom and the negative kinds of connotations associated with blackness and maleness, you have to develop a counter-narrative to shatter the myths and share the realities. You have to find spaces, whether they're formal or informal, where you can begin to deal with vulnerability. And one of the things I like always, no matter what city I'm in, I always like to go to the barber shop. The barber shop has become the epicenter of those informal kinds of engagement to deal with the warring things that we deal with, whether you're in corporate America, whether you're in the classroom. Those are some of the things, and one of the things we found in the literature is that African-American males are the least likely to uh, partake of counseling services. Typically, when they do go into counseling services, the court mandated through the penal system. And so when something is mandated, it te you tend to come with a sense of reluctance, particularly to disclose to someone in your mind, in your psyche, has contributed to your pain. We see it, the paradox. And I'm working in the Washington, D.C. schools. To, I think you'll get a kick out of this. My wife wakes up every morning and say, baby, be careful when you go in those schools. I say, well, honey, 
I said, nobody's going to bother me because I wear a bow tie and they think I'm Muslim. <laughs> I knew you would get a kick out of that. So she always gets a kick out of that. From the moment that African-American men are born, it's apparent that their racial and gender status represents a spoiled identity through the lenses of American society. In effect, the social status of African-American men, regardless of their socioeconomic backgrounds, political connections, or social reputations, is replete with obstacles and roadblocks in different social domains of the United States. It's quite likely that these challenges contribute to African-American men's reluctance to forge intimate and meaningful relationships with their counterparts, as well as their African-American culture. The extent of these relationships is easily accessed in both personal and professional contexts where African-American men consistently interact and dwell. It appears, according to Von Trest, that African-American males' reluctance, um, males' relationships not only to society at large, but to his parents, grandparents, and siblings are in some measure affected by the color of their skin. This social culture phenomenon is a function of race and the attitudes it espouses in American society. Not surprisingly, racial oppression has contributed to many of the psychological scars and emotional stresses and economic strains of African-American men in the United States. Numerous African-American men find themselves in this constant quandary, forced to negotiate the constructs of their racial and masculine attributes, as well as other converging aspects of identity. To some extent, they're coerced to find a happy medium between what is and what is not expected of them from both the African-American and dominant cultures. W.E.B. Du Bois says it best, refers to this psychological dilemma as double consciousness. Inherent in the psyche of African-American men is to, quote, take into account the obstacles that interfere with their acceptance. In a study that I recently did, well, let me just frame this for you. Unexpected failure impacts kids differently than expected failure. If you expected to fail, oftentimes the kids attribute their failures to, I didn't have the ability. Too often, African-American males are expected to fail. And you see it play out in the classroom. And what is so painful for me to work in the District of Columbia Public Schools is not just only an issue that's dealing with our white counterparts. Many of us have internalized the fears of the dominant society. Because in our district, most of the educators look just like me. And they have low expectations out of these young people. Indeed, it is painful to call someone a brother yes. is a feeling of endearment. 
me learning in my own life growing up in the rural south is that no matter whether you have a suit on or you have your overhauls on, when you go in someone's house, you treat them like kings and queens. Too often, many of uh, my counterparts around the country, they have climbed the ladder of success. And there's so many of the young brothers in the hood who want to have a piece of the same thing that we have. And too often, we don't take the time because of our own busy lives, trying to hold our own little lot in life to help and nurture these other talents. When I first took the position at the District of Columbia, even my own wife said, honey, you don't want to work in that district because it is challenging. I got a few gray hairs already. But to make a long story short, what is so painful, part of you have to look at the lens, the worldview. When I read scholarship and research, whether you fail to reject the null or you rejected the null, what is most important to me is how you interpret the findings. Too often when you bring scholars and they use rigorous research methodologies, oftentimes the findings tend to be scant and perpetuate the very things that we're trying to break away from. So it's very important when you do have converse conversations with scholars that you make sure that they have the lens to interpret findings in such a way that is useful to you. And when I look at these kinds of things, I, I did a study. I did a study, and this article is called The Prove the Wrong Syndrome. Whether you're white, black, green, purple, tall, short, many of us been in situations we enter domains where we prove people wrong. In, me, in this study, I was working with engineering students. I was interested in how they navigate through engineering at a predominantly white institution. And many of these students talked about the struggles and how when their professors put them into groups, and they were the only persons of color in the classroom. Everybody would just kind of turn away from them and they were the only one there. It's that kind of slight, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that impacts the psyche of the black male. And it's not, guess what? It even impacts women the same way. The best way to understand oppression is to understand rejection. I think we all can have some sense of how rejection hurts, it's painful, and it takes a courageous spirit to even to continue. But one of the things we celebrate in the study, we had men who did overcome, they did well in school, but it's never without a psychological cost. Sometimes we rant and rave, Jordan is doing, Michael Jordan is this, or Colin Powell is this, but I always wonder, what does it feel like when they, what do they say when they get home to know that struggle? So many of the things that we say in the counseling literature and some of my work is even though you might be successful, it doesn't mean that you're not affected. And we see this even in our own family and friends. Too many young people on high blood pressure pills. And we don't even think about what it's like to be in a toxic environment. Guess what? I always say teachers need sabbaticals. 
People who work in human services need sabbaticals. Because after a while, I found teachers who had been in the game for 30 years who had been fighters. They began to emulate and replicate the very thing that many of us in this room are trying to fight. I look forward to having a more intimate conversation. As I said, I, I have to realize that when to stop talking because I was getting ready to get going. So I'll stop. I thank you and I look forward to having a Good morning. It is an honor and a privilege to be here at the Ohio State University. I want to thank the conveners of the of this conference. It, all day I've been thinking about back in 1999 when I was at 1990 when I was at the African American Male Conference in Kansas, sponsored by the University of Kansas. I was thinking about when I was in Brooklyn in 1990 at the Contemporary African American Male Conference. That was one of the best I ever went to. Jawanza Kanjufu, Naeem Akbar, uh, Leonard Jeffries, Milana Karanga. And here we are in 2007, the African American Male. Uh, I'm a criminologist by training. I want to share three statistics with you. And uh, w the first one is... Homicide is the leading cause of death among young black males 15 to 24. Among young white males 15 to 24, it is unintentional injury, accidents. Homicide rates among black males 15 to 24 are anywhere from 8 to 10 times that of white males. And then the third statistic that I want to share with you is one on incarceration. For every 100,000 white males in the population, 482 are incarcerate, incarcerated. For every, every 100,000 black males in the population, 4,630 are incarcerated. You know, I, sometimes I use those statistics and others to construct what I refer to as the negative statistical profile. I want to, as my contribution to the conference, provide you with a contextual framework that might be helpful to you in understanding how we go from the schoolhouse to the prison house or the cemetery. And I refer to this contextual framework as the structural cultural perspective I incorporated in all of my work following the uh, path of Robert Staples. If you're familiar with the great Robert Staples, he used the internal colonial model, whether he was talking about dating or single families or crime. I used the structural cultural perspective. I want to summarize it for you in this way. In all of my work, I argue that the high rates of violence and social problems among African-American males are primarily a product of the convergence of structural pressures and dysfunctional cultural adaptations to those pressures. And I want to lay out briefly 
the three core elements of my structural cultural argument. First and foremost is our exposure to institutional racism. If you were to construct the African-American timeline, it would be one that really sort of highlights the significance of oppression. 1619 to 1865, that's about 243 years, status slaves. 1865 to 1954 or so, you have Jim Crow segregation. And it's not, and Brown does not end that. Because if Brown were to end it, we wouldn't have to have all of those great civil rights acts. So we really do not become enfranchised as first-class citizens until 1968. So as you subtract 1968 to 2007, that gives you our birth as first-class citizens in America, the African-American timeline. So you understand the significance of institutional racism. It refers to the systematic deprivation of equal access to opportunity in the form of political enfranchisement, the uh, access to education, vocational training, employment, etc. We understand that narrative in the history of African Americans. And all I want to say about that is that institutional racism has functioned as a barrier. If you're thinking about a race between the races, beginning in 1619, and the, the, the gun goes off and the race begins. The, well, the majority group takes off, sprinting, and the African Americans are bound down at the starting line in slavery. And then they're let go in 1865, but they have the barriers and obstacles of Jim Crow segregation. Just think how far ahead the majority group will be. The second element of these structural pressures is what I refer to as uh, race-neutral transformations of the economy. And I derive this from the work of the great William Julius Wilson in his great trilogy of books, The Declining Significance of Race, The Truly Disadvantaged, and When Work Disappears. And in that work, basically what William Julius Wilson notes is that our economy has changed. There has been a tremendous loss of uh, low-skill, high-wage industrial manufacturing jobs, the jobs in the manufacturing of vehicles or coal mining, steel production, etc., jobs that allowed men without very much education to secure income in which they could successfully transition from boyhood to manhood and assume the responsibilities of manhood. Well, there's been a decline of those jobs. And so what we have now is an expansion of sort of uh, low-wage service sector jobs as well as uh, expansion of high-wage, uh, high-education technology information age jobs. And that has adversely impacted African Americans. And the third element of my structural pressures is a term that's not used in um, criminology that much. I would, I would dare say I'm one of the few who, who are foolish enough or courageous enough to even think of a concept like this. And that is cultural racism. And I want to share a definition with you about what I, how I define this. And excuse me, this is the uh, ghetto boy become scholar definition, so it's long. The definition goes like this. Cultural racism refers to the systematic manner in which the white majority has constructed its core cultural institutions, religion, as, uh, education, and mass media, to elevate and glorify European physical characteristics, character and achievement, 
and to denigrate or put down the physical characteristics, character, and achievement of non-white people. Now, the significance of cultural racism is this, relative to institutional racism. Institutional racism blocks the people from access to opportunity. Cultural racism destroys the consciousness of a people. It destroys the who am I, who are we, where are we going, that identity piece. And that identity issue, the attack on our identity as people, as a people, uh, we have not adequately responded to that. Dr. Karanga always says that we as black people in America are suffering a cultural crisis. And that cultural crisis is manifested in the form of one, cultural amnesia. We really have 16, 19 knowledge and beyond. You know, I loved it back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s when a brother had a book out called uh, From the Pyramids to the Projects. So how did we go from being pyramid builders to project dwellers? It's a very interesting story and narrative that we have to understand and teach our young people. Cultural amnesia, I argue, is problematic because it leads to the second element of this cultural crisis, a lack of appreciation for black people. And where there is cultural amnesia and where there's a lack of appreciation of blackness, you get a, a lack of cultural uh, confidence. And the lack of cultural confidence leads to a lack of cultural competence, the ability, the belief that you can make things happen and do things. That's the structural part of this. Then there's the other part, and I refer to these as dysfunctional cultural adaptations. And basically, I'm, I'm self-critical or group-critical here, and basically argue that there are some things that we, as a people, have not adequately attended to as it relates to coping with these structural pressures. The first of this is that there's been a failure to, to create or to maintain a culturally affirming agenda, a culturally affirming agenda to counteract the impact of exposure to cultural racism. Wouldn't it have been something if the great Dr. Martin Luther King would have said, not only was, must we address institutional racism, but we must address the impact that racism has had on our consciousness, who we are as a people. The uh, second part of this, more understandable and related to criminology and sociological inquiry, is that I argue that post-1968, that we've allowed too many of our boys to make the passage from boyhood to manhood, defining manhood in terms of toughness, sexual conquest, thrill-seeking, and individualism. I see that as problematic. And as a consequence of assuming the roles of toughness and sexual conquest, individuals, uh, the streets, I see the streets as an institution a socialization institution at, par, at par with the church, the educational system. The streets has emerged as a major site of socialization and manhood identity construction for a significant number of black males. If you want to get at this problem of the black, the black male problem, if you will, you need to understand the streets as a socialization institution, an alternative socialization institution. So what, therefore, do I have to say with regard to the prevention of violence and related social problems? Uh, certainly my model would necessitate that I make some uh, comments about the need for great structural reform. 
I wanted to, I want to go beyond that. Of course, I believe in a lot of the liberal initiatives in that regard. But I think what is more important is that there be community ownership of our problems. So we can talk all day and try to get the majority culture in the larger society to understand the role that institutional racism and its contemporary manifestations play in our contemporary current social problems. That's good. We need to do that fight. But at the same time, since we have a cold or pneumonia or the flu, we need to do some some corrective measures on our own. And those corrective measures fall within the context of community ownership of these problems. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad of the Nation of Islam in his classic work, Message to the Black Man, had two quotes I want to share with you. He said, as Professor Howard noted, thank you, sir, before we accuse the other man, let us examine ourselves first. Elijah Muhammad also said, don't ask others to do for us what we need to do for ourselves. And so, therefore, I want to, since I know they're pushing me, I'm a Baptist and a professor. That's a dangerous combination. I want to share with you some words from our brother, Hakeem Madabuti. And, it's, and, it, and it really captures the kind of ethic that we, in, that we need to use in socializing young black males. And Dr. Hakeem Madabuti in this poem is called, uh, You Will Recognize Your Brothers, and I'll end with this. He says, um, you will recognize your brothers by the way they act and move throughout the world. There will be a strange force about them. There will be unspoken answers in them. This will be obvious not only to you, but to many. The, this will, uh, the, 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 the confidence that they have in themselves and in their people will be evident in their quiet saneness. The way they relate to women will be clean, complimentary, responsible, and with honesty. The way they relate to children will be strong and soft, full of positive direction. The way they relate to men will be that of questioning our position in this world, but will be one of planning for movement and change, will be one of working for their people, will be one of gaining and maintaining trust within the race. These men, at first, will seem strange and unusual, but this will not be the case for long. They will train others, and the discipline they display will become a way of life for many. They know that this is difficult, but this is the life they have chosen for themselves, for us, for life. They will be the examples. They will be the answers. They will be the first-line builders. They will be the creators. They will be the first to give up the pleasures. They will be the first to share a black value system. They will be the workers. They will be the scholars. They will be the providers. They will be the historians. They will be the doctors, lawyers, farmers, priests, and all that is needed in our development and growth. You will recognize these brothers, and they will not betray you. Thank you very much.
I just have some notes. I can't lie on the excuse of being Baptist if I go on too long. So, uh, I'll, uh, so I guess it's my fault, but I'll try to be brief in substance. And I really appreciate the honor and opportunity to speak on um, such a distinguished panel. I'd like to organize my uh, comments this morning around four issues. First of all, to talk about health disparities. We already started to hear some statistics. Then to talk about resiliency during adolescence as a paradigm, as a way for us to understand these disparities and also that might inform our ways of trying to address them. To talk about religion as an example, as an illustration of one aspect of how resilience might work among African-American males. And lastly, to talk about collaborative research and how that process may help us both understand the role of religion, resiliency in, in health disparities, as well as actually serve in and of itself as a way of addressing them. I also want to apologize ahead of time because just as the first speaker had mentioned how important and wonderful it is to have the community members and practitioners come into the academy, it's also important that us academics get out into the community. And I have a previously scheduled meeting at 1 o'clock downtown at Columbus Public Health with some of our community partners, and so I will beg your uh, uh, forgiveness if I have to leave before the question and answer session is done. Let's talk about health disparities for a second. We already started to hear some statistics, but overall it should come as no surprise to people that they continue to exist. That is racial disparities in health status in this country. I can give many, many examples, but you can summarize them all perhaps in the recognition of that life expectancy continues to be about five years longer for whites in this country than it is for blacks. And that actually, that has started to narrow in recent years, though for many years it was, um, it was it was extreme, and it still is a worrisome and, and frankly, disgusting uh, disparity. But there's also some gender differences in how that plays out. If we look a little more, more carefully, however, we can also talk about that of the many, many examples of racial disparities in health status, we might make a broad generalization that, in general, they tend to be a bit less among chronic diseases than for outcomes that we might refer to as infectious diseases. So, for instance, the black-white ratio in terms of mortality from heart disease, a chronic disease, is about 1.3 to 1. That is about, blacks tend to die about 30% more commonly than whites of heart disease. For cancer, about 1.2 to 1. Stroke, about 1.5 to 1. Again, persistent disparities that are worrisome and unacceptable, but are there. Um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, not lung cancer, but other like um, emphysema and other types of um, of uh, respiratory outcomes, about actually 0.7 to 1. So actually whites are more likely to die of that type of outcome than, than blacks. Again, but typically the disparities are in favor of whites over blacks. Now let's turn to infectious diseases. Um, in terms of, we can look at a variety of different outcomes, but we already mentioned, um, uh, well, I haven't really mentioned yet, but HIV AIDS. About 10 times more cases among African Americans in this country than among whites. Hepatitis, about 2.4 times, 2.4 to 1. Homicide, which we might um, most helpfully think of as an uh, infectious outcome, in, in many ways it parallels that epidemiologically, about 5.6 to 1, and it's varied over time. That's the most recent statistics. If we look at other types of outcomes like gonorrhea, I mentioned about risky sexual behavior. Among African-American females, 14 to 1. Among African-American males, 36 to 1. So while we should recognize the importance of disparities in chronic disease, it's these infectious diseases, and one of the questions is, well, why? 
Why should the disparities be greater in infectious outcomes than on, in chronic ones? So my, my general point is that these disparities exist, but that there's um, important ways to think about them a little more carefully. Now, we can also talk about how does gender play into this? I already mentioned in the last example about gonorrhea that the disparities, 14 to 1, is, is extremely worrisome and alarming. 36 to 1 is a whole other order of magnitude even higher. Why? Why should the difference be in terms of gender? In addition to what we call incidence or mortality statistics, that is, have you died or have you acquired a disease, another very helpful indicator that we in public health use a lot is called years of potential life lost. That is to say that in some level, not all deaths are the same. A 65-year-old who dies from heart disease might have lived another, you know, up mid-70s, late-70s. A child, however, infant mortality, had a whole life, decades and decades ahead of them. And so there's a way of sort of weighing and saying, okay, people that die younger, those cases count more at some level. And so it's another way of looking at this. And again, looking at just differences across races about what are the main causes of years of potential life lost. For African-American males, number one across all ages, years of potential life lost is homicide. About 15% of all years of potential life lost in this country among African-American males are due to to homicide. The next is heart disease, then unintentional injury, perinatal outcomes, so infant mortality, essentially, and cancer. Very different if you look for white males, as I already mentioned, unintentional injuries being the number one cause. Homicide's not even in the top um, five. Cancer, number one. Heart disease is uh, is three, I'm sorry. And we have a couple of others... um, And so we recognize there's very different reasons, not only in terms of how people are are passing away and getting sick, but also when they're doing so. And so we see these different patterns, and again, the question cries out, why? So I also say, are things getting worse or better? At some level, it's hard to say there's no overall trend. Some disparities, as I already alluded to, are actually decreasing somewhat in terms of life expectancy. Others have remained steady, um, infant mortality being an example, but that what we, some are actually increasing. And so it's hard to say in any general sense, in the limited time we have here, what are things getting better or worse. What is happening is that they remain, there remain to be disparities, and it continues to differ over time. So we have these disparities. They exist. We should be alarmed and bothered, everyone, by them. And so how should we begin to think about addressing them? Well, there's a perspective, especially among uh, people like myself who have a background in studying adolescence known as resiliency. It could be summed up in one question. Why isn't it even worse? We've heard about all the, you know, the terrific structural and cultural impediments and barriers to African-American achievement in this country, to success, to well-being, to equality. Why isn't it even worse? Why do some people do okay? Many people in this country, and I have worked in communities a lot, even in the roughest neighborhood, most young people more or less turn out okay. Yes, far too many of our young people are ending up in jail or dead well before their time, but most people more or less turn into healthy healthy and happy adults. And so the question is, what makes them different from their less fortunate peers? kid lives right next to them. One of them turns out okay, ends up as a college professor. The other one ends up in jail. Why? What's the difference? Is there any kind of generalization we can make to understand why some people are succeeding despite these enormous barriers they face? 
is that we can understand the natural, you could say, phenomena, the ways in which people naturally are able to respond to and successfully cope with these challenges. Maybe that's then what we should not, can also focus on as a way to address these disparities. My own interest in getting involved in religiosity and adolescent risk behavior was talking to kids and asking them that very question. Why'd you do okay? How'd, how'd you make it? And a lot, the answer I kept on hearing was church. Church, church, church. Again, not scientific, but that sort of prompted my interest in this, in this topic. And so if you begin to look at the literature, there are, of course, many people here are familiar with the important role that the black church plays in the African-American community. And indeed, there's um, good uh, evidence to suggest that it may be of particular importance, religiosity may be of particular importance to African-American youth. And so if we really try to understand how re religion may play a role in resiliency, we have to test a couple of assumptions. First, are, in, are youth indeed more religious? Is indeed religiosity associated with risk behavior? And lastly, if we were to address it, is somehow changing or increasing religiosity, whatever that might mean, can that lead to less risk behavior? I'd like to talk about each of those briefly. In general, a variety, and I'm trying to summarize across many different studies here, and so the claims I'm making, I can point to specific studies if you're interested, but across many different studies, there's very good evidence that African-American males, or African-American youth in general, tend to be more religiously involved, whether the measure is how often you attend religious services, um, religion being an important part of shaping your daily life. Um, they're more likely to pray alone. Um, they're... Um, they're more, twice as likely to feel extremely close to God. And if we also make a generaliz generalization across many different studies, girls tend to be more involved religiously than boys, regardless of, uh, of ethnicity. And so, and not surprisingly, we look at the literature, and those people who describe themselves as religious, who en endorse these outcomes, tend to be less involved in sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, no, no, no surprise there. No, we're not going off to the Nobel, not not going off to Stockholm to get a Nobel Prize for that insight. Again, that's in general true, and so we find this empirically. What's curious, however, is that the strength of this relationship is much weaker, and in many many studies, even absent for African American youth. Let me say that again: that in general, kids who are more religiously involved tend to be less involved in risky behavior but that the strength of that relationship, it doesn't seem to work as well among African-American youth. It's a curious finding. And so this is um, the paradox that represents the genesis of this, this um, project that I've been helping work with. And I want to acknowledge some people, Dr. Townsend Price Spratlin, who's co-investigating the project, Fred Johnson, Columbus Public Health, who's, who are here, also involved in the project. You thought I didn't see you. <laughs> I, uh, the, um, and what we wanted to do is begin to ask this question, why does religion seem to work for some kids and not others? And why maybe does it, in general, among African-American youth, does it tend to be conflated in this way? Um, without getting into too much detail, I wanted to talk briefly about some of the findings we've had from a survey we've done working with a couple hundred youth in uh, several dozen black churches around Columbus in particular, and that in general, interestingly, the effect seems to be a bit stronger among males than among females in these different dimensions of religiosity. And so maybe we, in general, we haven't looked carefully enough at the literature in this area, and so we've been looking at black-white comparisons, and yet we haven't thought about gender differences and how religiosity might be different. Also that, in particular, the role of what we might 
call spirituality seems to be particularly important. Those kids who feel especially close to God are much less likely to be involved in precocious sexual behavior than those kids who feel less close to God. However, showing up at church, being involved in a youth group, doesn't seem to have near the effect. In many cases, doesn't have any um, significant association. So just to review, so far, we've talked that we, we provided evidence that youth really are, African-American youth really are, tend to be more religious than other ethnic groups in the U.S., that religiosity is indeed associated with risk behavior, though maybe less so for African-American youth. But what about, can we actually change it? Can you increase religiosity? Now, I haven't tried submitting a proposal before our institutional review board to say, well, we're going to try to randomly assign, make some kids more religious and make some kids less religious and see what happens. In Columbus Public Health Department, we can't do that. It's beyond our purview. A variety of ethical issues involved. And so the question is, who can? Who can make kids feel more spiritual? Who might be able to help us in this process? The answer is congregations, churches. And yet they're not, why would they get involved in us? Why should they even trust our statistics? Our, and so this speaks to the need for us to do collaborative research, both to, both to understand the nature of how religiosity might, roll, right, rep, might represent resiliency and also as a way to actually do something about it and stop just talking about it. So I wanted to talk, end, my, end my comments briefly in talking about the value of collaborative research in this, in this regard. Now, understandably, especially in the area of religion, especially in the area of sex, especially in the area where white researcher and colleagues are coming into black churches, there's a lot of suspicion. There's a history there. And, uh, yeah, chuckle, chuckle. I know that. Uh, many people in this room know that. And, and to recognize that, and there's a general question of, what's your real agenda? Why are you really here? And that's a question I need to ask myself all the time. What am I really here for? To get tenure? To get a publication out? To some extent, that's what uh, many of the researchers in the academy, regardless of your background, really are there to do. That's our outcome. That's our measure of success. And so we have to be honest with ourselves. That's what I'm really here about. And to be able to lay that, and, but then to be able to say, okay, well, what's in it, what would make it worth your while? Why should you get involved in this? I don't have the answer. I'm not going to tell them, this is why I think it's really important for your community. We can just understand this a little bit better. Yeah, then we'll publish it, and maybe somebody somewhere will read that, and maybe somebody somewhere will eventually develop a program or, uh, or project for people like you to help you. And that's typically how, why the universities value research, in that we go out, we collect data, we write it up, and then we try to, um, we publish it, and the hope is that somebody somewhere is going to read it and help change policies and programs for the people you're working with, but that the, direct, the actual people you're sitting down and taking data from, taking blood pressure and asking survey questions and, and a variety of other ways of collecting data, they, they themselves are not going to directly benefit. And so we need to short-circuit that process and be able to sit down honestly and say, okay, what's really in it for you? I don't know. What would make this worth your while? And that makes a variety of challenges for us academics to be able to justify to the funding sources and to the university, this is why it's going to take longer. This is why it's going to be different. This is why much, much more of our budget is going to the community rather than going to the indirect cost recovery for your department. And so one of the meetings I'm going to right now, 12 o'clock, is where we're sitting down with youth pastors, senior pastors from a couple of different congregations, someone from Columbus Public Health, 
and be able to talk about, here are some of the findings we're coming up with. We could, we could analyze the survey a thousand one different ways. Which are the findings that are most compelling and perhaps most challenging, but also most hopeful in recognizing what is the potential for you to do to actually work in this way is also what is the limitation. Church can't do everything. Parents can't do everything. Schools can't do everything. And by able to have a broad shared understanding of the answers to those questions, not a comprehensive answer, but the beginning of an answer, we can then be able to engage people and in the fall have a meeting where we bring together local foundations, local health agencies, and parents and teachers and uh, the teens themselves and the um, and uh, academics to be able to talk about and discuss this so we're all on the same page. And then we can begin to move forward in terms of building better relationships across these different institutions and also be able to have a shared understanding as well as a plan for action for how to address health disparities. So thank you for your time. Can you hear me? Uh, I'm going to do a juggling act here. I have a, the outline of my presentation on PowerPoint, but I fortunately have my notes on my laptop. So uh, hopefully it will work out. I won't drop either of them, and uh, you'll find the outline a little bit helpful. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, I know I'm the last speaker before lunch. But I do want to leave you actually with some optimism, so hopefully uh, you'll think it's worth uh, waiting to hear what I have to say before you leave. I have a slightly, or maybe it's not so slight, different perspective from all the speakers you've already heard. Uh, I'm a black political economist, and um, so I actually focus on economic empowerment, uh, economic justice, and economic democracy issues. And so uh, that's why giving this title, Developing Economic Agency Among Young Black Men, because I I want us to focus a little bit more on uh, proactive things we can do. Um, But I also realize that nobody here has actually talked about the economic statistics much at all, so I will give you a quick uh, economic background about some of the gloom and doom statistics, but the other thing you'll find out about me is uh, I don't like the gloom and doom stuff, so I really try to cut to the chase and get to talking about um, what what to do to move forward and what are some of the promising practices that I see out there and how we can replicate them. So I'll try to make sure to get to those things um, after I give you a quick background uh, on some of the gloom and doom. The other thing I want to say by way of introduction um, is that also being a political economist, I actually think a lot of the economic statistics, economic history, and this economic structural issues explain a lot of what we've talked about already this morning, but again, because I want to get to um, looking at the proactive economic agency issue, I'm not going to talk about that relationship, um, but you'll probably see by some of my discussion about what we can do, um, 
how that leads into or how you could extrapolate from that why some of the economic issues, I think, are actually the root of some of the other causes. Uh, and then I also, um, I'm going to talk about community ownership as well as one of the other speakers, but this time I talk about it in the economic sense of community ownership rather than just the spiritual, social, and political senses. And finally, by way of introduction, um, we often assume that the economic sphere is sort of the last place where we can make change. And I actually believe it's one of the first places that we can make change and that if we make change in the economic sphere and increase economic agency, that we actually have spillover effects into the other spheres that we're worried about. So this is the outline. So the first three, two or three things are sort of a quick history about where we are now and where black men, particularly black youth, stand in the economy and the changes. And um, soon we're going to actually have to stop talking about deindustrialization because it pretty much started in the 60s and we're pretty much at the end of it. Um, in some ways, we've been idealizing industrialization because it was at least the last half of the period of industrialization. We actually got African-American men into decent jobs with benefits and career positions and stuff. Um, so in some ways, it's easy to idolize that and say, well, at least let's get back to that, even though when we were in that period, we knew what was wrong with those jobs, too. They were still exploitative and didn't always uh, give people enough uh, job ladder success and that kind of thing. Um, but it is, it still plays an important part in understanding what's happened to African-American men and to African-American youth. And then we do have to acknowledge that we are in this global information age and what that means. And then I do, my focus is on looking at entrepreneurship and ownership uh, and how we make, start to train young people in those areas. So hopefully I can bring up my notes and we can get started. So uh, you all know the factory model. Um, as I said, it was pretty much once African-American men got, union, got into the unions, we were able to access some of the long-term stable jobs that actually gave a fairly decent wage and benefits. Um, almost immediately, once we made inroads into that economy, uh, the factory model started to deteriorate and we started to deindustrialize. So we had a very short history of benefits in those, uh, in, in those industries and factories, uh, but it did give us a growing middle class in the 60s and 70s, somewhat into the 80s with some uh, African Americans able to own houses and some other assets um, and some basis for, uh, I would say, propelling the civil rights movement and uh, increasing opportunities in other areas. So as I said, we have a in some ways, we have an idealized model of the factory economy just because at least we got something out of it. Um, but we also have to remember the shortcomings of it, and those shortcomings have now uh, continued to permeate into the industrial, sorry, the post-industrial economy, which is the service economy. Um, and most of you know we're now in an economy where the fastest growing jobs are pretty much in the service area. Those jobs are much less dependable, they pay less, they have fewer benefits, and they actually tend to be more discriminatory, even though we're in a post-civil rights era. Because of the service nature of them, it's much easier for employers to think that 
people's looks, people's language um, could be a barrier to their performing a service, and so it's easier for them to um, discriminate against hiring people who they think are different or don't have the same qualities as they think their clientele does. So we actually have a lot of um, research about um, paired, what do you call it, paired survey, matched pairs where you send out a black and a white person for the same exact job. They have the same exact credentials except one person is black and one person is white. And uh, three times out of four or even more often, the white person gets the job or gets the house or gets the mortgage or gets the mortgage at a better rate, et cetera. Um, so we know about growing discrimination in the service economy. We also um, know, as I said, that um, it's different from the factory model because production was able to actually produce much more stable jobs with benefits. Okay. I wanted to give you some statistics about what I call the relocation of resources. Part of it is the growing um, joblessness of African-American men, particularly African-American young men. And some of it is also uh, reallocation of resources from cities and urban areas to suburbs and then to other countries, chasing uh, low costs. Oh, yes. So I've got my notes here so I can give you a few of the statistics. And as I said, I don't want to focus on the gloom and doom. But I do want to give you a few statistics since we, nobody else did do that. Um, the one statistic I have comes from a study uh, that was done for a, a Chicago group in 2004. They found that since 1954, I just passed it, sorry about that. Since 1954, black male teen employment rate has been on a secular decline, falling to a low of 40%. And that, I don't know if you understand employment. This is not unemployment, but employment. So employment means you take all the people in the civilian workforce um, and see what percentage of them have some kind of job over that six-month period. So... Um, falling to a low of 40% range at the end of the 50s to 39% range at the end of the 60s to 28% in the end of the 70s and late 80s um, and remaining between 28 and 30%. So we had a high of black teen employment in the 50s of 40% of the population of black teens and we now are down to between 28 to 30% are in the labor force. Oh, sorry. Actually, now, that was 2000. Now, in two, this was in 2004, we're actually down to 20%. So that's the lowest employment-to-population ratio for black male teens in the last 50 years. And uh, can com can, at the same time, <laughs> we have college enrollments continue to be competitive and costly, and we know that black males are actually the least are the fewest percentage to get a BA degree. I think it's 17% black women or 18% with a BA. This was in 2002. These are compared to their counterpoints. 31% uh, of non-Hispanic white men have a BA degree. And um, for black women, I think it's 39%, something like that. And then uh, we also know that 
the uh, quality of jobs has increased, particularly for African-American men, but actually for African-American uh, men and women. Another study in the 2000s showed that uh, the pattern of growth in jobs has actually bifurcated, so we now have some really good jobs growing faster than middle-level jobs and some very poor jobs growing faster than middle-level jobs, but of course it's now um, racially bifurcated, so the growth in poor jobs is going to African-American men and women, but mostly to the men if they are getting jobs, and the better-paying jobs are going to uh, whites. So that's the statistics. Let's uh, get away from the gloom and doom and move on to something a little more exciting. One of the benefits, I would say, of, lo of the global information economy is that we have moved into these uh, soft skills in addition to the technical skills. So I've done some work looking at, well, we know that African Americans are behind on the technical skills. Um, sometimes they think we're behind on the soft skills because they don't necessarily think we have good communication skills and community, uh, customer service skills and that kind of thing. But actually, a lot of those things can, can be taught in schools if we give them practical business experience. And so um, you'll see, I look at school-based programs that actually give students the opportunity to start their own cooperatively owned businesses. And the cooperative part, as I'll talk about in a second, is the part about that they actually work together. So it's not so much as a competitive model as a work, a collective working together and sharing the profits and the risks model. The other thing about the global information economy is that there's a community development gap. As I said, resources are moving out of cities and out of the country. Uh, that means there's a gap in resources and a gap in economic activity, particularly for inner city youth. And again, I suggest that getting inner city and young people involved in proactive economic entrepreneurship and businesses will actually help fill the community development gap because they'll be doing locally-based, community-based businesses. Uh, and that would give them more opportunity. Um, oh, petty capitalism limitations. Sorry, we don't need to get into that. But basically, my point was that I'm not really talking about a model of trying to get all young people into little junior achiever, um, sell T-shirts on the corner kind of petty capitalism. Uh, I'm talking about actually getting them to develop cooperatively own businesses that help solve community problems. So uh, getting into recycling or there's one model where they do um, bicycle repair and at the same time educate their peers about um, ecology and how a bicycle is a great mode of transportation both for time and ecology reasons. And then they learn the skill of repairing bicycles and then set up their own shop to repair bicycles, that kind of thing. Um, benefits to owners, by that I mean since the returns to work are decreasing and actually finding a good job is decreasing, we need to figure out how to make young people owners. And again, ownership can be uh, risky. That's why you talk about it as a collaborative, cooperative effort where people can share. I'm running out of time, so let me give you some examples. One of my favorite examples is the Food from the Hood program in Crenshaw High School in L.A., Right after the L.A. Uh, rebellion in 1992, the young people at Crenshaw High were trying to um, figure out a way to sort of rebuild their neighborhoods and do something in their community. They came up with a school garden, which they actually started in the summer. But by the fall, when it was time to harvest it, they were trying to figure out what to do with the food. They wanted to donate some to the homeless shelters, but they also participated in a farmer's market. 
and they found out there that they could actually make a profit on their produce, and so they tried to think of something they could do um, to start a business around that and then to use the profits in an important way. They ended up with a line of salad dressings. I think they have two or three flavors. Is that what you call salad dressings? <laughs> anyway, you, know. <laughs> um, you can actually buy them on Amazon.com, um, but they sell them throughout their neighborhood and throughout California. So basically what they do now is it's a, it's a student-owned business in the high school um, they create the salad dressing from the products from the, uh, the school garden. They market and sell. And then the proceeds, the one, proceeds that they don't need to redo the business, you know, to restart the business every year, goes into individual accounts for each of these student managers. And they're able to actually use that money to go on to college. Somewhere I have the statistics of how many have gone on to college and how much money they raised for that. What it meant is that that program not only had a nutrition and farming component, but it also had a college prep component because they realized they needed to train the students how to um, apply for, you know, how to be prepared for college, how to apply for college, and to help them get in, and then they could use their money for college. Um, and they also ended up doing a peer tutoring program. So let's see. I want to find those numbers for you, and then I'll give you one more example, and then my time is up. But I actually have more examples if anyone wants to ask me about them. Um, sorry, anyway, I'll keep talking. I'll find it eventually. Another project is uh, the Urban Nutrition Initiative at uh, Pennsylvania, University of Pennsylvania, they work with the horticulture department at the university to get those students to train high school students in nutrition and, again, gardening um, and teach them how to start their own co-ops and farmers markets. Then they get the high school students to do the same thing at the middle school and the middle school students to do the same thing in the elementary school. So it's not as much a business, but there's some business aspect to it. And then, as I mentioned before, the um, chain reaction bicycle is in Washington, D.C. That's actually started by an outside nonprofit, but they work within the schools, again, to do training and workshops and provide students with training on how to uh, service a bicycle, but they also do education about uh, ecology and using a bicycle and air pollution and those kind of things and why bicycle transportation is important, et cetera. Uh, okay, found my numbers on uh, food from the hood. And I guess I'll leave you with that because, as I said, I want to leave you with some optimism. Um, and Food from the Hood is also planning to replicate this, and so they are um, going out around the country talking and helping other groups to do this. Um, they awarded, this was uh, in the, over ten, the first 10 years of their existence, they awarded over $180,000 in college scholarships to 77 graduated student managers. So they also managed, they got students graduating from high school and going on to college, which is another thing that I found with these programs is they help to actually motivate young people to stay in school. So they're both doing economic development in their communities, staying in school, teaching other students, learning uh, other projects, and somewhere, yeah. So it connects them with adults, gives them an opportunity to develop leadership, economic and business skills, management and democratic participation experience, and to earn some money. 
and go to school, go to college, and we obviously need programs and policies that would support and resource these kind of programs. That's it. <laughs> okay, let's give our panelists another round of applause. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, and I see people lining up to ask questions and make comments already, but I've been given a note by the conference organizers. We are going to now break for lunch and reconvene at 1.45. Excuse me? We can't have Q&A? Okay, the note was, uh, okay. The note was very confusing, if that's the case. All right, we will have Q&A then. So... If you can line up on both sides of the auditorium, we have microphones up front, and we will begin on the left-hand side. Okay. Uh, Dr. Oliver, thank you very much for your model. I think we should all use it as a model for research and change. But my question is actually for Dr. Steinman. In 1996, uh, John DeLulio and William Bennett wrote a book called uh, Body Count, How to Win in America's... Uh, war on crime, no, America's crime, whatever, problem. And they argued in that book that, you know, no matter how much money and social programs you pumped into kid, into the community, it didn't matter because these, these, these kids lived in moral poverty. And so eventually the Christian right and, and uh, conservatives took this argument and then made the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and then put John J. DeLulio, who created the super predator thesis, in charge of it. And this is recently. And then William Bennett later on said, a, few, a couple of years back, he said if you wanted to stop the crime rate, you would abort every black baby in this, in this country, right? Remember that? Okay. So my question to you is, based on the way in which uh, the Christian right and the conservatives have manipulated the, the black church and, and sort of that idea of the church is going to save you and really took out money from social programs and put them, try to say that the church is what's going to help people. Wondering uh, if you took any of this propaganda into context and, and, and I'm wondering the question is whether you know if your research will sort of contest it in any way or actually you know, uh, help this propaganda out. Thank you, and um, talk about the, I mentioned it's a controversial topic, and so uh, there's a loaded question, but uh, now in general, I'm not, I have, my my own personal jury is very much still out on how that, the whole uh, federal office of faith-based community initiatives, can you hear me? Yes? Okay. Am I articulate? Okay, okay, just, just check. <laughs> that, that I can't help. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, they, they can't help with that. Um, for, um, I, I honestly, and I'll try to say this honestly, come at this without an agenda. As a social scientist, I'm supposed to, you know, I see my role in this whole process is trying to inform the debate better with science. There is, as you pointed out, it, lots of political forces behind this. Some people are saying church is the answer to everything. And that we need to get the, you know, create these offices, et cetera. Other people are saying, absolutely not. Keep church out of it. 
And what I'm trying to say is a lot of the arguments from both sides are not really founded on much empirical evidence whatsoever. And so what we're trying to do in this process is, un is help inform the debate with some better results. And also to, so to understand the potential as well as the limitations for what congregations can do. That said, I, I think it's important, and I want to point out that we do so in a collaborative way in which we recognize that um, if we are to do this in a way that the results are actually going to be useful, we have to involve congregations in the process. And that we can't just sit back here and study statistics and then be able to tell, okay, congregations do this. If they're to take ownership of it and it's to remain indigenous and, and they remain controlled, whether it's the black church or, or in other communities, it's important that we conduct this research in a collaborative way. Okay, we're going to move to the right-hand side. My right-hand side, your left-hand side. And I offer the following caveat. If we can keep the comments and questions brief, so we can fit in as many as possible. Great. Um, my question is also to you, uh, Dr. Steinman, and it's actually a point of clarification that I'm seeking. You made a comment that um, indicated that somehow the connection to church was not impactful in terms of mitigating particular behaviors amongst African-American youth. Is, is that what you were saying, or can you just elaborate a bit on that? And I, I just wanted to ask you before you had to leave. So Sure. No, th thank you, and I appreciate Thanks for giving me the segue. To say I, have to, I really have to leave soon. Um, the, uh, what I'm trying to do is summarize across a lot of studies, and there's a lot of studies, what we think we know about how religion is associated with adolescent risk behavior. And uh, not just one study, but many studies have, when they tried to look at racial differences and the strength of this relationship, often find, not always, but often find that the effect of the strength of the association is less for African-American kids or there's no association. And there's a variety of hypotheses that, that have been ventured explaining why, why does this not, it seems black church is so important or church is so particularly important for African-American kids, rates of religious involvement are higher and yet at the same time, also many of the outcomes that we're concerned about among youth are also high among black youth. And so how do we explain that? How do we understand that? So in general, yeah, I think it's a fair generalization to say that in general, the strength of that association is less. And indeed, some of the research that I've looked at, looking at those racial comparisons, has found the same thing, in particular area of substance use and violence. Okay. We'll go to uh, my left, your right. Uh, my question is, um, I've been in mental health for probably about 16 years, and so, like, I've been doing adult mental health. So if I had made the decision that I wanted to switch and be going to the educational system based on what I see, based on my experience as a person, I would then have to be certified, despite the fact that I'm an independent counselor, I would have to be certified by the Board of Education to actually be a counselor in the school system, despite what my experience is and, and everything else. Also would have to send my transcript, or I have to come back to the university, where the university would have to certify me to then work in the school system. I think that's ridiculous. And I think, I think that at some point in time, somebody needs to be able to say, we need these paraprofessionals. We need drug and alcohol counselors to go in these schools and help people. And they should be able to walk in there and do their work. Would any of our panelists like to address that? or? I mean, 
I'm a counselor by training, and school counseling, I primarily train, well, I train school counselors rehab and mental health, but school counseling is my area of focus. And in fact, I'm serving as the coordinator of school counseling in the District of Columbia Public Schools. However, there are two different roles, even though you're mental health and school counseling, they do two different kinds of things. They have two different professional identities. They have two different kinds of professional ethics. Uh, unlike many professionals in the schools, teachers don't have a, they do have a profession, I'm not saying they don't have ethics, but they don't have a code of ethics like counselors do. Now, I'm a proponent of the mental health school, uh, mental health counselors in schools and there are models around the country, particularly when I look at the District of Columbia Public Schools. Many of the kids that, or even in the Columbus Public Schools, I've done a lot of work in Columbus Public also, is that many of the factors that our kids experience has nothing to do with cognitive ability, has a lot to do with some of those social communal factors that we're talking about. It's very difficult for a kid, if they have a rainy day at home or they live in a violent community, to leave that mindset at, at the door when they come into school. Mm -hmm. So I am a proponent of that, but if you're saying a counselor serving as a school counselor, they, they're two different kinds of roles, but I, it's a both and, not an either or. And unfortunately, in school systems, politics and bureaucratic procedures are developed because it creates a paradigm of either or rather than both and. Uh, we're going to move to the, excuse me. We're going to move to the next question. Okay. But you've got to have I'll be glad to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. Hello. Uh, my name is Laura Valentine. I work with the Neighborhood House Incorporated here in Columbus, Ohio. They do a variety of things. They, of course, they work early childhood development. They work with youth. They work. They have a health and nutrition, and they have an incubator business program. I, myself, am a chemical dependency counselor. I mostly have 98% uh, of my clients are uh, black male ex-offenders, um, and that's my passion to work with black male ex-offenders. Um, when thinking about the structural reform, um, uh, Dr. Oliver, um, I think of the institutional racism that I see and the need for policy, a policy overhaul. Um, a young black male, for example, is ridiculed, as we've seen, and harassed in the cultural racism of their school, and they drop out. They may have siblings, and they may have a uh, absent father or mother on crack, and, and he tries to get a job at 14, and there is none, and the streets say, well, sell this crack. That young man gets busted, and he goes to jail at 19. His life is over because the system says, you're a felon. You can't get a job. The prison industrial system, who profits off of prisoners, don't hire prisoners, and they don't invest in your programs or reentry programs. This child can't go to college because it says that he has a drug charge, so he can't get financial assistance. So at 19, his life is over. I just wanted to ask your opinion on how you feel about policies and what policies you feel should be changed? <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the most important thing that we need to try to change is try to utilize more alternatives to incarceration, one. And two, I think that our community needs to be more proactive in generating and producing 
alternatives to incarceration. So not only are young people and young adults are failed by the system per se, but they're also failed by the network of support that exists within the communities or that should exist within the community. Okay, we have time for one more question. And as Dr. Smooth mentioned during the previous uh, session, if you have questions or comments, if you can write those down and give them to some of, some of the conference organizers outside, that would be most helpful. Okay. We have a young person here that would like to ask a question. So could we, could we please honor the youth while we as adults have the opportunity to and let her ask a question? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go my name is Israel Tony, and I go to Lyndon McKinley High School. And I had a question for Dr. Moore, the uh, third. Is it fault on black males for their own failure? I think that since we were placed in a state of a state of failure, it was it has been built in our minds that nothing is acceptable. So most practice the method because new opportunity isn't offered. Did you understand the question? Tell me that first Give part. the question the again. The first no, part. Man. You can do it. Is it fault on black males for their failure? Keep going. No, he already knows. Huh. I, I don't think it's entirely the fault of black males. And when I say that, I, I blame, you've heard the saying that it takes a village to raise a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, I profess that the village is ill. Um, and I say that primarily because so many of the young people, in some, they have role models, some of them, but there's a shortage of black males. Not only, when I say shortage, I don't mean that we don't exist on this planet, but I'm talking about what I talk to the sisters at the academy and every domain in society. They talk about having a comparable, a counterpart on the same level as them. And so when I think about the challenges that we have as a community is bridging those gaps. We talked about disenfranchisement of young people. They can't take entirely the blame. However, as a human being, some of it is going to fall on yourself. And France Fanon posed two questions, and I tell everybody that even the ones who say they believe in equity, he posed these questions, said, who are you, and are you who you say you really are? And so if someone called you the N-word, if you respond according to my dad, you might communicate or suggest that you are the N-word. But if you don't respond, you might say you ain't talking to me. So I can give you multiple examples of people. No matter what someone's conditions are, I can always give an example that somebody's conditions were worse than yours. And so what I say to young people, young brothers and sisters, uh, I, th I see oftentimes with some of the brothers in our schools, because I try to leave central office or even the academy and, and have conversation. Quite often, even though we know that there's a cloud on black males, Sometimes we still make excuses for them. Mm -hmm. There's a big gap, and it's a, it's a theory, the knowing-doing gap. If you ask some of the young brothers, say, how many in here 
I mean, not in this room. You go to any classroom and say, how many think they need an education? Almost every last one of them raised their hands. But if you ask them, how many of you all do your homework? How many of you all, when you began to get into the nitty-gritty, even though, even with my colleagues, even my Ph.D. students sometimes, when they say they believe in something, then I say your behavior says something totally opposite. And so what I'm saying to you, I think it's a both and, not an either or. It's not only. Because if you're born into certain conditions, that was beyond your control. However, as a human being and knowing something about the existential spirit of human beings that we all possess, it is saying that I have the spirit and courage to be courageous enough to shatter the myths and share the reality. And so I can give you so many examples, and I like to say, I always tell people they, that when they go to my websites, even though I never met these people before, but I like to thank Benjamin Mays, Du Bois, E. Franklin Fraser. I mean, and Benjamin Mays is from South Carolina, where I'm from. And he was born into slavery. Many of us in this room haven't weren't born into slavery. I mean, not I'm saying he was born into that time. His father was born into slavery. Let me get that back. And he was still able to rise above his state. Mary McLeod Bethune, Eartha Kiss. Every time someone give me an example that we can't do something, I can always counter and show you somebody with a conditions, circumstances much greater than all of us in this room. But one of the things I tell the sisters all the time, we can't let the brothers off the hook because it's time for them to step up too and be accountable for certain the things that they can be accountable for. Because in my own personal belief and some of the work from working with black men for over 15 years is that when you ask them do they have choices, most human beings say they have choices, but they may not have all the same choices as everybody else. So thank you for being courage, courageous. Okay, at this point, we will break for lunch. Thank you again.